With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Yeah, I used to have a, a boss who I was fine working for him when I didn't have to deal with him. I would just do my job. And then every now and then, he would invite me to dinner. And I would always... I couldn't even figure out why. I always felt bad about myself after the dinner. And so my technique for dealing with toxic people is to just simply cut them out of my life completely. They're out. You were a little more gentle in your seven ways to deal with toxic people. Like, What are some of your ideas? And by the way, this could be a boss. This could be a relationship. This could be a friendship. Some situations you have to deal with a person like a boss. Some situations you can distance yourself like a friendship. But what are the ideas? So, you know, one, like if it's somebody, let's say it's your mother-in-law who happens to be this person, and then you think, well, if you were to cut your mother-in-law out of your life, it'd cause relationship problems. So so you don't want to do that. But at the same time, you don't want to have this person taking a toll on your life. So then it's about saying, okay, you can't set a physical boundary necessarily, but you set an emotional one. So when we run into these toxic people, sometimes we complain about them, right? You dread seeing them, so you spend four hours dreading that you have to see them. And then after you saw them, you spend four more hours thinking you wish you hadn't seen them. And Are you describing your the past four hours before arriving at this podcast? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but you know when you, uh, I've done it before, when I'm doing something I don't want to do it, I could easily waste the whole day. So a one hour meeting or appointment with somebody, uh, I you know, waste four hours thinking how I don't want to go. And then afterward, rather than just move on with the day, it's easy to complain about it, to call somebody invent, or to just sit and think, gosh, that was terrible, horrible, and awful, and that person shouldn't say those things or should be different. And then suddenly that one hour is taking up eight or nine hours of your day, and you're giving that person so much more room in your life. So, mm. and we think venting helps or complaining somehow gets it out or makes you feel better. It doesn't. I am so excited to once again have Amy Morin. Originally, you've heard of her. She's the author of 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. 
Then she wrote 13 things mentally strong parents don't do. Now we're talking about 13 things mentally strong women don't do. It's a great book. We're going to talk all about it. And you've been on the podcast talking about how you bought jewelry or diamonds cheap and sold them <laughs> expensive. That was a great podcast with a with this money-making venture that freed you and your husband to live anywhere in the world. And then you were on the podcast interviewing me, and I think we made that a two-parter. Yes. So it was great to be psychoanalyzed by you, a former or current therapist. So welcome back. Thank you. I think this is number six. Yeah. Sixth time I've been here. Which, so. which might be the record. <laughs> um, Steve, is that, do we know if she's six, the record holder? Yeah. What about like Tucker Max or Brian no. Koppelman? Koppelman, you, I think you're now in the lead. Great. Yeah, you're in the lead. Distinction. And you know what? <laughs> I have gotten so much value from your books. Like I regularly refer to th 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, 13, I'm, I'm a parent, so 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. Your story of how you kind of quit, you know, quit the daily grind and did this side hustle that turned into a business, that was a great podcast. And of course, your interview with me, I really enjoyed. So one of the few times I've had a chance to be a guest on my own podcast. So, uh, and now this book, you had to find 13 more things that mentally strong people don't do. Because really, you title this 13 things mentally strong women don't do. But as I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, am I a woman? Because I related to every single one of these things. And you have some statistics that say more women than men do this. But I relate to, you know, chapter one, they don't compare themselves to other people. I do this every single day. It's a, it's a daily practice to remind myself in various ways that... Although sometimes I compare myself to other people and that's a stress, uh, I always remind myself, I always ask myself the question, would I truly want to exchange places with this person? And the answer is always no, 100% of the right. time. Not that I'm so great or they're so bad, but I really just wouldn't, wouldn't want to be anybody else but me. So what are, actually just real quickly, what are some other ways if you, if you find yourself comparing yourselves to other people, what do you do? So I think one of the biggest things is to look at other people as an opinion holder rather than a competitor. Uh, I really liked when you said that, uh, actually. It made me think. So so go ahead, go ahead, and then I have my comment on that. So you need to look at people and say, okay, well, maybe that person knows something I don't know. I can learn something from them, but rather than thinking they're better than I am or they have more than I do or I'll never be like them, just try to learn from the people that you meet. So what's an extreme example where that's hard? Because I can think of a lot of examples where that's really difficult. So, so again, the basic idea is if, if, if you're comparing yourself to someone, let's say you're comparing yourself to, I don't know, Kylie Jenner, all right? Mm -hmm. This billionaire model who seems to have every door open to her in life. And I don't know, for some reason, whether you're a little girl or older or whatever, uh, you're comparing yourself to her. Or let's say I'm comparing myself to, you know, some super athlete or Elon Musk or whoever. Uh, uh, how do I view them as an opinion holder rather than someone who's just hit every single milestone faster than me? Right. So I think when we look at people like that, it's easy to think, well, that person's lucky or they were born into something. And some of that's true that we don't know that they would necessarily be where they are if they didn't have some good fortune that came their way. So it's easy to start thinking, I'll never be like that. It's not fair. And that's when we start to get into that mm. um, area where it's 
not healthy for us. So instead of saying, well, what could I learn? What could I learn from Kylie Jenner? She's obviously great on social media. She knows what she's doing. She knows how to make money. What could I learn from that? Or if you were looking at an athlete, well, what could I learn from this person? What could I change in my own life based on what this person does? And it's not about copying people, but just about learning. This person has some skills, strategies, knowledge that I don't have. What can I do and apply that into my own life? Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, I think you're right. I think a, a, a lot of times people say, well, of course this person has X because they started off on third base or uh, it's easy for them to say this when they have billions already. Like I wrote an article recently about Warren, Warren Buffett and in uh, uh, some of the ways, some of the kind of interesting ways he's used to get wealthy that are not obvious. And someone, someone I grew up with, actually, someone commented, um, oh, it's easy for Warren Buffett to say this. He has billions. And uh, it's just not true. Like he didn't, st- he made the billions doing these things. And so, but people, their gut reaction is to say, I can't do this because they had a, they had a special thing. Right. And then we think, well, I can't relate. And that person's on this other pedestal or all these milestones that I'll never reach. But you can consider people in your life or even people you don't know, celebrities, some sort of a mentor, something you can learn from them, study them, gain information. I mean, that's what you do on your podcast is you bring in guests and you learn from them, right? Rather than thinking uh, you have to beat them or be better than them. Well, well, I don't know anything about Kylie Jenner other than that she was on the cover of Forbes and she's a Kardashian. I guess she's Caitlyn Jenner's daughter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I don't know if you know anything about her, but let's do this exercise with Kylie Jenner. I could say, well, she started off on third base. She's a Kardashian. Um, she looks like a model, is a model. And the machine was already in place by the time she was 17 or 18 to, for her to just launch a whatever line of things she has and make it in, and put it in every store and catapult her to success. What, what, what opinion, how can I view her as an opinion holder? Let's say I'm an 18-year-old girl. Yeah, so, okay, she was born into a famous family and was put on the TV show and had all of these assets that most of us don't and probably won't ever have. But to just say, okay, but at the same time, even though she had all of that going for her, she obviously has some lots of business knowledge. She's figured out lots of different things, and she's famous on social media, and she is able to build brands. So just to look at those things that you could learn from her, you're probably never going to learn how to have your own reality show, but you might learn how to how to put a product out there, how to get attention, how to how to really sell something. So it's just really looking at what are the things I could learn from her. Right, because there's been plenty of celebrities who've had, you know, put out perfume lines or whatever, and it didn't work. Right. So what, I guess, suppose there's something very interesting about what made her brand seem more authentic than some other celebrities that tried to put out a line, and, and could this be applicable to selling anything, or I don't know. And, and she seemed to, she's unlike... Other stories in that family, she seems to have kept her uh, common sense, you know, or, or she, she seems to be a little bit more normal than the rest. I, I don't want to use the word normal. I'm not criticizing the rest of them, but she seems a little different than the rest. Right, right. And so I think to to study that, what makes her compared to the rest of the family, what's made her her be so successful? If you just studied people, just looked at people as somebody to study, somebody to learn from, I think it would go a long way. And then we won't build up as that resentment or envy or anger towards people that we think are doing better than than we think they deserve to be or better than us. Right, and, and the other example I gave was Elon Musk. And I guess one could say, okay, forgetting all about the business stuff for a second, uh, uh, 
he he didn't let you know he wanted to make a spaceship that would go to Mars. He didn't let people tell him, well, you don't know anything about physics and you're not NASA, which is the only US body that has launched rockets into space. So he didn't let he didn't let anybody give him permission. He just started reading a lot of books about physics. He started talking to a lot of rocket scientists, which cost zero. Maybe right. they were talking to him because he was already rich, but he wasn't that rich when he started SpaceX. He had just I think he was still even involved in PayPal when he started really having an interest in space. So uh, this is a guy who goes out and kind of figures out how to create solutions on his own rather than waiting to be granted permission. Right. So I think if you just took that and you said, okay, well, then what kinds of things in my life, how do I apply that to to the things that I'm doing and uh, just learn from people? And and this is also related to that that chapter and some other chapters. I'll take the Elon Musk example again. You know, maybe there are some aspects, and I'm not judging one way or the other again, but maybe there's some aspects of his personal life that don't jive with how you want to live your own personal life. Right. And so you have to say, well, okay, billions are not billions of dollars and working 150 hours a week is not everything. Maybe there are other aspects of my life that I could work on. And that's why I'm not running 20 companies and maybe a little bit unhappy in other areas of my life. Right, because I think it's so easy to look at somebody else and then we lose sight of that. Well, is that really my values? Is that really how I want to live my life? Would I want that to be my priority? Or if you took the example of an elite athlete, do I want to spend 12 hours a day working out and eating and never enjoying time with friends and family and that sort of a thing? The answer would be no. So I don't really want to be like that person. Right, and so so uh, we kind of jumped right into one of the chapters and one of the specific techniques, but before we get into some others, what I find really interesting about your stuff is that it's, you always bring it down to being applicable. Like you can try these ideas out and you could remind yourself of them. Like I'm not going to solve comparing myself to others overnight. Nobody is. But I think the key, what, what you stress throughout the book is reminding yourself that you could be susceptible to this. And then here are some ideas of what you can do. Like always trying to remind yourself the next time you see yourself engaging in this negative behavior that mentally strong people don't do and then applying some of these techniques. And you think you get that aspect from, you, know, you were a therapist for many years and you know you, you saw people do things and change their lives. Right, and I think it's not necessarily like, gosh, I never do these things anymore. We all do them sometimes. It's just catching yourself when you do them and when you become more aware that you do them and how it plays out in your life, and you can catch it and say, all right, what can I do differently? Yeah, so... And and of course we talked about this in the very first podcast that I did with you. You you were a therapist for years, but then you had these tragedies in your life. Your your mom passed away. Your first husband passed away very suddenly at a, at a young age, and you had to get your life together. You were, I mean, we talked about it before. But were you depressed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I had periods in my life, and it was dark and ugly and you know just anxious of like gosh can i handle losing another person what if something else bad happened uh, things and then all at the same time trying to from a practical standpoint to figure out now what do i do with my life and uh yeah lots of things um just the whole grief process is terrible and uncomfortable and it comes in waves you have moments where i felt would feel okay and moments where i'd feel terrible and and i'd feel happy but then i would feel guilty for being happy it's just messy <laughs> Like like the very first day you went back to work, or were you a therapist then? I was, yeah. So the very first day you went back to work after your husband passed away, what did you, how did that feel? Like how did you deal with going, 
pretending to have a normal routine when your entire life was suddenly different overnight. Yeah, that was dreadful. So I took a couple of months off from work because I said I just can't be a therapist, can't go in and help somebody else with their problems. So I took um, a couple of months. It was as much as I could take. And then I had to go back to work. So I went back to work on a Friday and didn't see any patients that day. I just sort of went back into the office, saw my coworkers and that sort of a thing. And then on Monday morning, went in and thought, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can listen to other people's problems. And my patients had all been told I had some sort of family emergency, and they didn't know what it was, but some of them figured it out because we lived in a fairly small town, and so they'd either saw the obituary in the paper or had heard. So I knew some people would know. I knew plenty of people wouldn't know. I knew some of them would ask questions like, where have you been or what's going on? So I didn't know what to expect, but the first person I saw when I went back, she, one of the first things she said to me, I'm so glad that you're, that you're back. You wouldn't believe what happened while you were out. And I said, what? And she said, my husband almost died of a heart attack. What she didn't know is my husband had just died of a heart attack. And I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know that I can sit through this hour. And she went on to explain and all, everything that had happened. And when I got through that hour, I thought if I can make it through that, hopefully I can make it through anything. And it was a really long hour and I got through it. And I think she had no idea, thankfully. <laughs> that well, do you think your experience, as painful as it was to sit there and, and have that hour, do you think your experience added a, an extra kind of layer of texture to your response to her? Absolutely. I think, you know, my life before that had been fairly simple, fairly easy. And I think I it just gave me a whole new respect for people who are struggling with things and just to know how painful and, you know, didn't mean her experience was uh, less painful than mine. She'd been through a lot too, but I was able to empathize, I think, at a whole new level. Do you think, I mean, a lot of people... I, I, there's something I call failure porn in the entrepreneur world. People feel like, oh, they've got to fail at their first business so then they can go on and succeed. But like taking a step back from that, do you think, do you think it's possible to gain these perspectives without some kind of suffering? You know, I think you don't have to go through like everything that other people have been through to experience it. But I think, uh, I think there's a lot to be learned from pain and suffering. I mean, part of the Part of the reason I read your books is so I don't necessarily have to go through your suffering, but I could picture it and feel it and you tell the story. You know, ultimately, all these books are collections of stories about these things and how, to, how you dealt with them and how your patients dealt with them and other people. So hopefully uh, someone reads a book and they say, okay, well, I haven't experienced that, but I feel some of the, the pain and suffering and I've experienced it in small ways in these other categories so I can relate them. And then, oh, and these techniques that she's developed and these ideas that she's developed through this suffering, I can apply as well. I hope so. And I think, you know, if we take the experience of grief, we all are going to lose somebody. And even if it's not a, a death, we go through things like divorce or, you know, friendships that end, they, that sort of a thing. So on some level, all of us can relate to grief and loss and, and change and pain of some sort. Yeah, so you you made this Instagram post yesterday, uh, seven ways to deal with toxic people, which I think is a great topic. I think about this topic a lot. And in fact, uh, we mentioned before the podcast, we were talking about this. I had wrote uh, a similar post just by coincidence yesterday, how to deal with crappy people. Your word toxic is probably better than my word. Uh, but I always say the toxic people are not the neighbor down the street. It's always actually the people closest to you 
who in some way or other, I don't know, betray your sense of what they should be doing. Whether that betrayal is real or imaginary or whatever, it's still somehow or other they've become toxic. So like, what's your definition of a toxic person? Um, I think it's somebody who, uh, you know, just drags it down for one reason or another. I guess in simplest terms, it could be somebody that passive aggressive, somebody that has to put you down, people that give you backhanded compliments, for example. Like you say, often it's not that person that you just occasionally interact with. It's somebody that maybe pretends to be your friend and then isn't. Yeah. I, I used to have, um, a boss who, uh, I was fine working for him when I didn't have to deal with him. I would just do my job. And then every now and then he would invite me to dinner and I would always, I couldn't even figure out why I always felt bad about myself <laughs> after the dinner. And I never really figured out why. I mean, eventually I figured it out, but I would just notice I'm always feeling bad around that when I'm around this person for a long time. And so I started to, my technique for dealing with toxic people is to just simply cut them out of my life completely. Um, and they could write and call and whatever. And I just, they're, they're out. Um, you, you're, you were a little more gentle in your seven ways to deal with toxic people. Like what are some of your ideas for dealing with toxic people? And by the way, this could be a boss. This could be a relationship. There are some situations, this could be a friendship. Some situations you have to deal with a person like a boss. Some situations you can distance yourself, uh, like a friendship. Some situations you could temporarily distance yourself, like take a break, like a family member or someone like that. But what are, what are some of the, the ideas? So, you know, one, like if it's somebody, let's say it's your mother-in-law who happens to be this person. And then you think, well, if you were to cut your mother-in-law out of your life and cause relationship problems. So, so you don't want to do that. But at the same time, you don't want to have this person taking a toll on your life. So then it's about saying, okay, you can't set a physical boundary necessarily, but you set an emotional one. So when we run into these toxic people, sometimes we complain about them, right? You dread seeing them, so you spend four hours dreading that you have to see them. And then after you saw them, you spend four more hours thinking you wish you hadn't seen them. And Are you describing your the past four hours before arriving at this podcast? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but you know when you, uh, I've done it before, when I'm doing something I don't want to do it, I could easily waste the whole day. So a one hour meeting or appointment with somebody, uh, you know, waste four hours thinking how I don't want to go. And then afterward, rather than just move on with the day, it's easy to complain about it, to call somebody invent, or to just sit and think, gosh, that was terrible, horrible, and awful. And that person shouldn't say those things or should be different. And then suddenly that one hour is taking up eight or nine hours of your day and you're giving that person so much more room in your life. So, mm. and we think venting helps or complaining somehow gets it out or makes you feel better it doesn't and you really think about it the more you talk about people you don't like you might get a moment of pleasure and the other person agrees with you or something by the way this is an important point it used to be considered quite common and healthy even in psycho psychological literature that venting worked but right. it, but all the research shows that venting just does not work Right. And like, I think you mentioned it in this book. Yes, because it's one of those things. Everybody come into my therapy office and say, I have to get it out, as if getting it out somehow meant it wouldn't then bother you. But the more you talk about it with other people, you call a friend and you complain about somebody, you hang up the phone, you call the next person and you tell them the same story. That's just more time and space and energy that they're taking up in your life. So don't do that. So what if, so, okay, so what should you do? So you're, you're, you're going to visit your mother-in-law in four hours. What, what should you, and you're dreading it. What should you do? 
So that would be where we say, change the channel, come up with something else to think about. And it might be that you have to physically get up and go do something different to get your mind off of it. But you have to make the conscious decision. I'm not going to spend the next four hours allowing this person to occupy my brain. But it's really hard because it's it's an addiction. Yes. Like sometimes we get addicted to, and you have it as another chapter, overthinking, but we get addicted to thinking, well, she's going to say this again, and then I'm going to say this, and then she's going to say this, but I've got this prepared, and I can't believe I let her say this last time. And, you know, we, we get addicted to these mental conversations. Uh, you have case studies in here. People just stay up all night, like, arguing in their head. Right. And uh, 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 how do you how do you get over that addiction? Because one thing about an addiction is it feels good. It sometimes feels good to have these imaginary arguments because that's where you get to win. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And we fantasize about, yes, how it's going to end up this time. And I told him this time and that really helped. But I think it's about just recognizing, okay, I'm, I'm putting this much brain power into this person and they're taking up X amount of hours of my day. So just try to do something different. I'm going to go talk to somebody about a completely different subject. I'm going to get up and go run an errand. I'm going to do something in my house. I'm going to um, just stay busy for a few minutes and just see how it feels. Try it. Even if you think that's not going to work for you, do it as an experiment for a week and just see what happens. If your mood gets better, if you start to feel better, you start to think differently. But And you have more time and energy to devote to other stuff. What about, I'll call this past toxic syndrome. What about if you you have been visiting your mother-in-law every month for the past 12 months and you never really stood up for yourself you're miserable about it and now your arguments in your head are not about the future but about like why did i let her say this to me or why didn't i just respond with common sense on this one like and so now you're addicted to like these past <laughs> you're addicted to being angry at yourself even angry right. at her and yourself for not reacting differently is, that's a slightly different issue, but I guess the same kind of solution. I don't know. Right. So then I think maybe you, when you're rehashing that stuff, rather than just keep replaying it or imagining yourself doing everything differently or all the things you should have said, just say, what did I learn from it? And then what can I do differently next time? And to try to just apply it going forward. It's almost harder to do that because you think you, because then you actually are aware of the wasted time and, and the bad decisions that you made that might've even affected other people in your, in your life. And so there's, there's, there's not only anger, but maybe a little regret or shame or whatever. So you have to kind of put this technique in overdrive, which, which makes it harder. Right. Cause I think it's sort of like if you, you start a business and you think I already put this much money in, I don't want to quit now. Even if it's failing, you want to keep going. I think it's a similar thing that we, we think, okay, I've invested this much into thinking about this toxic person. I don't want to quit now. <laughs> almost as if somehow by continuing it, you're going to make it better or change it. It's almost, it's similar to the advice on, um, doing too much comparison thinking. So right. instead of taking a negative reaction, whatever that negative reaction might be, try to figure uh, okay, all I have is today and hopefully going forward. So what can I, it's too bad what happened or or it's too bad I'm comparing and then I've done this for too long, but what can I, how can I change the focus to learning so I could just simply improve myself? And, and improving myself has nothing to really do with the other people. Just because right. just, I have to make the actions to improve myself. But what can I learn from these past mistakes? What can I, not do or what can I learn from this person or whatever. Right. And when we look at a conversation, say that happened last month and you're thinking of all the things you should have said, we've well, had 30 days to think about it. And then you blame yourself for not coming up with that witty remark in that moment. But 
you did the best you could with what you had and moving forward to do things differently. But we have this sort of hindsight bias of thinking, oh, I should have known or I should have done something differently. But you've had all this time to think about it now. And, you know, it, it, well, actually, let's talk about some other techniques. I've bookmarked all over, all over here. Uh, I like this one, write yourself a kind letter. Um, that's in the uh, perfection perfection chapter. And so on the one hand, you say women are, are more likely to be perfectionists than men, and that slows them down. So we all, we all kind of know uh, whether we've heard it or instinctively we know that perfectionism is is not so good. It could right. be, you know, it prevents people from, it paralyzes people into not doing things if they can't be perfect at it. When in fact, to get good at anything, you have to be imperfect for a really long time to get better. If someone's playing, like Michael Jordan is kind of the classic example. He was not a perfect basketball player right straight out of the womb. He even got rejected for his junior varsity team. And then he had to practice, you know, 10 hours a day shooting baskets so he could improve. Um, and your argument is maybe women even feel more of a sense of they have to be perfectionists. Uh, a, why is that? And B, you know, related to this uh, the idea of write yourself a kind letter. Yeah. So, I, you know, when I was really studying what to put in the book about specifically for women, that was one of the things that kept coming up. And the more I interviewed women, the more they just kept talking about that pressure to be perfect. But it was things I saw in my therapy office, too, of women who felt like um, if they didn't set the bar high enough, then they were somehow selling themselves short. And they really confused high expectations with perfectionism. And it had become this badge of honor for so many of them to say, well, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist without realizing how it backfired. And so many of them would say horrible things about themselves. You know, I should have done this differently or I'm never going to meet that goal. I'm not good enough. And so we would have all these conversations in our in my therapy office about, well, would you ever talk to anybody else like that? And the answer was always, well, no, I'd be That's much, a good one. much nicer to my friend or my neighbor or somebody that came to me. And so we would do this exercise sometimes, write yourself a kind letter. And maybe it's just three sentences long that says, you know, hang in there, you're doing great, just keep doing the best you can. Something as simple as that, and you tuck it in your pocket, put it in your purse, whatever it is. And when you're having a rough day, you just take it out and read it and remind yourself that you're doing okay. I I've I read somewhere else that, that that basically works, that if you write something down, not like in a kind of self-help affirmation sort of way, but... That, that, you know, just taking that action uh, triggers various cognitive biases that really do sort of build the neurons to think, okay, I'm, I'm fine where I'm where, doing how I am. Um, right. You know, another, another idea I sometimes use is if, if someone is telling my daughter these things that I'm telling myself, right. what, would I, what advice would I give her? Like, uh, you know, let's say she just starts trying to get good at some new activity and she's she feels like she's failing so it's not worth trying so i'm i am i i basically imagine that cuz let's say i'm trying to get good at some new activity and i feel like i'm failing so i imagine someone telling my daughter oh you're failing you can't get good at this right. do something else and and then i it almost sounds common then i imagine what advice i would give her if she came to me saying oh my boyfriend is telling me i'm no good at this so i should try something new i would of course tell her ignore him. Right. You're doing fine if you just try to improve a little bit every day. That would be obvious advice to me. And yet it's sometimes hard to apply advice to yourself. I love that, that you do that because it's true. When our emotions get tangled up in there, we can't, it's like you can't see the forest through the trees because, but when you really take a step back and you can relate it to somebody else, 
it doesn't take much for that answer to come to you or the advice or to be much kinder. So I think any way that you can do that, then you start giving yourself that same dialogue, the better off you'll be. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time 
if you use Hims. Hims, H I M S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use Hims from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims. Dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I know you say a lot of women say they should be perfectionists, maybe more than men. And I've seen this a little bit. Like I've with friends of mine who are women, I would say they're more likely to say, Oh, um, too old to meet uh, a, a good boyfriend, or I'm too old to uh, switch careers, or I'm too old to start a business, or I've never, I didn't have this degree, so I can't start this type of business. So I see a little bit of that mm-hmm. uh, with women, and that goes along with your chapter. Um, you know, people should be willing to break the rules or society's rules a little bit more. But with men, there's a there's a similar kind of pr- pressure, but maybe they don't call it perfectionism. You know, men you know, are are pressured to be, let's say, the breadwinner to make right. more money than uh, anybody else in their family. And, you know, it's a it's a kind of perfectionism that you need to be the best in your family at making money. Or, uh, you know, m- men tend to be a little bit more competitive, which is a, a, mm-hmm. a form of perfectionism. Right. Uh, so I think this a similar advice probably applies. Like, let's say, I don't know, let's say I'm interested in being a billionaire, but I'm not, and I'm never going to be you know, the kind letter still works. I can say, well, I'm a good father. Um, I've lived this many, lived this many years and most of them have been somewhat happy and here's where I've been happiest. And I should just continue doing more of that because that's more important than being unhappy and having billions and whatever. I don't know. I'm just the same. Again, that's why I, I, I strongly emphasize these are just, these are 13 more things mentally strong people should do Although I get the emphasis is on women and 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 you're 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 quoting a lot from situations with women and your publisher probably wanted you to have a book with a different title. Is that <laughs> why you didn't like the title? Just because it says women? Yeah, because it's it's again. I read every. I'm not. I'm not kidding. All thirteen things. I wondered to myself. Gosh, am I a woman? Am I transgender in some way? <laughs> because like should I be referred to as as they or them? Because I can't. I'm not making fun of that uh, because I, all these things I feel apply to me. Like I, I occasionally compare myself to other people, particularly if I'm trying to get really good at something, mm-hmm. I'll compare myself to someone better who's, you know, 
who I would like to have their skill or their whatever. Uh, sometimes I want to be great at something when I first start it. So I insist on perfection sometimes. Uh, I, I don't see vulnerability as a weakness. I do see vulnerability as a strength, but that's through uh, decades of trial and error. Mm -hmm. Eventually I learned, you know, this is your chapter three, uh, mentally strong women don't see vulnerability as a weakness. I finally learned that vulnerability is an enormous strength. Right. So, but it took me a long time. Uh, uh, let's talk about chapter six. They they don't avoid tough challenges. And w so let's say a tough challenge might be quit, quitting their job or, or starting a, a side career or starting a new career or going back to school or something. Well, you know, when we were, when I was writing this chapter, I was really researching, okay, what do we know about women when it comes to confidence and moving forward and, you know, the part about self-doubt in here too. But we know that women sometimes tend to take criticism the same as, as they act as if it was rejection. And studies will show that men treat criticism and rejection as two different things. And yet women often take criticism to uh, to a different level. And they feel like if they're criticized with their performance, then somehow they've been rejected. And it keeps them from saying, okay, should I move forward? Should I apply for that new position? Should I launch something new? Um, and I think a lot of it goes back to, um, and I talk about how we treat girls a little bit differently than we treat boys way back when they're starting school. And that the message that we give Little boys sometimes, uh, teachers will say to a to a boy who does well, that's because you're smart. But they'll say to the little girl, it's because you tried hard. And so I think for this women— is the, This is the Carol Dweck mindset. Yeah. Thing, the, the growth versus fixed mindset. Right, right. And it just—I you know, I find a lot of that to be heartbreaking That when it comes to just the subtle messages that we give to girls and then how that affects women as they're growing up. So if you think, okay, I—, I succeeded because I tried hard. Well, then if you fail, is it because I didn't try hard enough? Do I need to do more? And it puts all this pressure on women, I think, to to always um, not just meet their expectations, but to try to exceed them and to try to keep going. But then at the same time, I see women who will say, I don't think I can do that or I'm not good enough. And so they won't put themselves out there. They don't want to try, try new things because they think, you know, I, it's too tough for me. So I really wanted to write this chapter as a way to help women know, yeah, things are tough, but but you're tougher. You, you're stronger than that. And just because you don't think that you are doesn't mean you shouldn't try. But that's you telling them that is great, and they probably listen and and they read this book and they feel good. Yeah, I could, I could, I do say these things, and I could meet tough challenges. But then maybe the next day they wake up and it's like, oh, it's too tough for me. They go back to the thinking. I feel like meet the phrase meeting tough challenges is a is is more of a muscle than um, than an action. So, mm -hmm. so I mean, actions are the result of building up this this muscle, and you kind of have to figure out how to practice the the muscle of knowing you can you can face things that you you didn't think you could face. Right, and that's just it. Sometimes people will say, "Well, I can't do that because I'm not I don't have the confidence to do it." Well, obviously, you don't sit on the couch for a week and suddenly a spark of confidence comes. You have to get out there and do things, and that's how you build confidence is through practice and by trying things and by putting yourself out there. And for a lot of people, it's just building confidence in the fact that you can be uncomfortable. And so if you figure out, okay, I was anxious, but it wasn't the end of the world, I can handle that. Well, then I can do the next thing, and I can do the next thing. And what, what's some what's some uh, like simple, like if someone's thinking of, uh, uh, the, I, if someone's thinking of the big challenges, like, oh, I can't do this, so I'm just going to do nothing. Do you, do you sort of 
suggest little challenges that they should try to do? Like what sort of little challenges can they do to practice the muscle, to exercise the muscle? So I think, first of all, figure out what's uh, what's something that's measurable. Sometimes people will come in and they'll just say, well, I want to be happier. I want to have a better life. Well, what would that look like, right? What does it mean to be happier? What would you be doing if you were happier? So maybe somebody would say, well, if I were happier, I'd be visiting friends more. or I'd have more contact with my family. I'd be doing more fun things. Great. Let's schedule three fun things in your calendar this month then. And it's just small steps of if you were going to be the person you wanted to become, what would you be doing differently? Identify those things and then just figure out in the next 30 days what's a couple of things I could do or find small action steps of what could you do today and then just take those steps. So when you, so after your husband's death, when you were in this grieving process and maybe you were thinking at different points, what am I ever going to do? Like, how can I get back to a normal life? That seemed probably seemed like a tough challenge to you at the time. What were some of the ways you started moving moving forward slightly. So for instance, one example is when you the first day you went back to work, you didn't see any patients. You just sat at work. Right. Like that was kind of the uh the way to make that challenge a little easier. Like the first uh, difficulty was going to work. Right. And then, you know, another difficulty was just figuring out what to do with a lot of the stuff that we had. For example, we had a boat. I didn't know what to do with this boat. So the matter of figuring out, do I want to sell it? Do I want to keep it? And I wanted to keep it for a while. And then I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't drive the boat. I don't know how to back up a trailer into the lake. So, and then it was okay. So give my permission to sell it. And once I felt like, okay, I can sell it, move forward. And I had to give up some of the goals that we had together, things that, you know, trips we had planned. I had to think, do I still want to do this as a single woman? Do I not want to? And then doing new things. So I went out and I bought a motorcycle. I got my motorcycle license just because it's something I used to think would be fun to do. But I... so, so was this like a conscious decision? Like, okay, I need to figure out how to almost do a pattern interrupt in my life. Yes. And one, and I always wanted to ride a motorcycle, so I'm going to get a license. You, right. Maybe not even buy a motorcycle, just get a, get a motorcycle license somehow. Right. And that was it because I knew if I just kept living my life exactly the same way that it was. It was just going to be this big empty hole there. So it was about saying, well, what do I want to do differently? How do I want to spend my evenings now rather than I'm not going to come home and sit and eat dinner at the table in the exact same spot I always did with this glaring hole, the fact that I'm by myself now at the dinner table. So what do I want to do differently? And about finding new things that to fill my time and figuring out who am I as a as a person now that I'm suddenly single again in my late 20s. How did, how did you... Um, how did you- like that seems like a tough challenge. Who am I? Right. When, when your whole life, your parent and your husband, your whole life had just changed and you were very young. How old were you again? You were like- I was 26 yeah. when my husband died. And uh, uh, the question of who am I is is a tough challenge. What did you, you know, so yes, there's the motorcycle, there's the sitting at work without seeing patients. What, what other little things did you do to start realizing who you were as an individual? Like, how long were you married to your, to your husband, or how long did you know him? Um, so I think I was 19 when I met him, so we'd known each other for quite a while. So this was really the first time in your adult life that you were Amy Morin by yourself. Right, right. Without and, parent and and husband. Right, and so here I am living in this house and thinking, you know, I can remember the first day the furnace broke, and I thought, I have no idea how to fix it. <laughs> I, um, you know, what am I going to do? It's in Maine, it's freezing cold out. And, you know, who do I call? What do I do? And it was really about 
figuring out for the first time, you know, who are the people in my life that I can call would have been something that Lincoln would have done and handled on his own and I wouldn't have had to worry about it or to figure out what do you do when you have a flat tire. And I found I became much more independent and I was able to say, okay, if your tire's flat, we'll change the tire, you know, you're not helpless. <laughs> and then and then did that did you feel like that exercised this tough challenge muscle? So you were able to in different areas of your life get tougher and tougher in terms of the challenge you were able to overcome? Yeah, I think then when I just made myself do things, even though I didn't want to, because I thought, well, what's the alternative? And I felt like I had to do them. Then I figured out, okay, I can I can do it. And the more I did, the more competent and confident I felt that I could keep doing more. What uh, what challenges do you tell patients if they are overcoming? You know, or or here's, here's a different question. I think a lot of people don't have tough challenges. The first challenge they have is this just sort of general malaise that oh, I'm 45, 50, 55. I'm doing this job for 20 years I don't really like. I'm in this family situation or personal situation that I'm feeling a little uncomfortable with. It's just kind of like this minor yep. chronic simmering depression that's barely measurable, but it is depression. Yep. And they don't know what to do. They don't know what new challenge to take because they don't even necessarily recognize this. this is happening to them for the rest of their life. Yeah, I think it's very true. People get stuck in a rut, right? You get up and you go to work, do the same thing day in and day out. And when we, the goals and dreams we used to have kind of go out the window, we kind of accept, oh, that's never going to happen or I'll never be that person. And people watch a lot of TV. They end up sitting on the couch way more than they ever in intended and life kind of starts to pass them by. And I'd see it in my therapy office, at, uh, you know, middle-aged people would come in and be like, oh, I don't really know what's wrong, but something's not quite right. This isn't what I thought life was going to be like. So it doesn't have to be something huge. It might be something small. Maybe you decide I'm going to learn a different language. I'm going to take a class, but you just need to know like what gives you some excitement in life? What's fun? What do you want to do with your time? And sometimes it's about looking at the bigger picture and saying, you know, do, is this how I want to spend all my hours of my adult life or do I want to do something different? So uh, uh, unpacking that a little bit, let's, let's take the, you know, try learning a new language. Uh, on the one hand, this is exercising that tough challenge muscle. So it's like giving yourself permission to try something completely new. And whether you succeed or fail, you've exercised this mus muscle so that the next tough challenge you have, hopefully it'll hopefully be a little easier to do it. The other thing is diversifying the small things you do in life uh, as much as possible so that maybe you could find something you really fall in love with. Maybe, right. maybe you start taking Spanish, you don't like it at all. Um, but now, okay, you've exercised, uh, did something new. So I've exercised that muscle so I can now do another thing new. And then you try, I don't know, taking tennis lessons, taking piano lessons, learning how to program, learning, uh, going to tango meetups and maybe meeting somebody. You could start exercising lots of these small things and, and diversify. So eventually you find, hopefully the, not only you face the tough challenges better, but maybe through one of these things, uh, you're, you're trying and your diversification, of challenges, you find something you love. Right. And I think it's all about learning something new. I think when you get older, it's easy to, to just get stuck in that routine and you forget to, to get out there and try new stuff and you have to make more of an effort. It's kind of like when we look at the passage of time, when you're a kid, time seems to go by a lot 
more slowly than it does as an adult. Yeah, why is that? Well, they looked at that and they figure out, well, you know, when you're a kid, you're learning something new almost constantly, right? And so as you keep learning things and things are new and novel, it's sort of this excitement about life and as you're figuring things out and then you become an adult and we get stuck in this routine and you don't really learn as much new stuff unless you go out of your way and make an effort to do it. But you know what the problem is? People, uh, you know, and you mentioned this in, in the book, People are addicted, for better or for worse, to social media. And I don't, I'm not as down on social media as many people are. And as, you know, kind of the the, the go-to article, it seems, if you're like a, a, a journalist, is how social media has these negative effects. And right. there's always a different negative effect each each article. But social media is a great way to keep in touch with people you wouldn't otherwise keep in touch with. It's a great way to kind of absorb you know, news rather than reading a newspaper. You could kind of engage with friends about different topics you're interested in. There's a lot of groups about things you're interested in. But, um, uh, you know, the thing is people are so absorbed into social media, it's hard for them to maybe read a new book or try try new things or figure out what, you know, what they could do. And so, well, last time I talked to you, you were doing an experiment where you didn't take your phone with you yeah. places, right? Are you still doing that? No, I have <laughs> I have my phone with me. And I don't know why I, I did it for like two months where I would not take my phone out of the house. And it was great. Like the effect was amazing. Uh, why did I stop doing that? Jay, Steve? Um, maybe you felt like you needed it for emergencies, right? What emergencies do I ever have? <laughs> I don't have emergencies. <laughs> Nobody calls me. I haven't gotten one call today. I don't know why I stopped doing it. I'm going to start doing it again. Thanks for the reminder. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one thing for a lot of people. They don't realize how much time they're spending on social media. I mean, I hear so many people say, I don't have time to do anything. But if we ask them how much time do you spend on social media, people usually say not that much. And so I've done it with some people where I say, great, let's track how much time you spend on social media. There's different apps that will track it. And, you know, to their horror, it, 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there adds up. So it's really three hours at the end of the day. Yeah. No, the average American spends over four hours a day on on social media. And isn't that insane? And you think at the end of the day, if somebody said, what did you learn? Well, we're just kind of scrolling mindlessly for the most part. Yeah. So, so, and it's interesting. Like I, I, when I carry my phone with me, I, let's say I'm in a cab. First thing I'll do uh, is check my email. So I'll check my email all throughout the day. Even if I don't have new email or even if there's no email, I'm not going to respond to an email in a cab because I'm really bad at typing on the phone. And then when I, when I wasn't carrying my phone around, I'd go home and it would just take me three minutes to catch up on my email. Let's yeah. say I had let's say I had fifty new emails, only three worthy of responding to. Take a minute to respond to each one, and that's it. You kind right. of can get it all done in three minutes. What would but if you're constantly checking, it's that constant checking that really adds up. Yeah, absolutely. So I think for people just to build awareness of how much time you spend doing something, or same with TV, I have a lot of people that will spend hours in front of the TV, but they don't really realize it. And of course a lot of people a lot of us, me included, sit in front of the TV and then you have your phone in your hand anyway, so you, you don't really enjoy either one. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's an interesting, like, one one thing that I do now is, let's say I'm about, like, I love good television, but if I'm about to start watching a new TV show, a new series, say, even if I love it, I have to really say, okay, well, what's going to be the time commitment on this between season one, episode one, and wherever this ends up? And if it's, you know, you, you you can easily make the comparison. Okay, well, this is going to take 150 hours of my time to catch up. Like, let's say Game of Thrones right. would take me about 170 hours to catch up. 
what can you do with those 170 hours? It's kind of amazing. So right. if you if you sort of eliminate all of these things like social media, um, t- you know, I, I have to make a little exception for television just because I I love good shows so much and I feel there's things to learn from from great storytelling. But let's say you eliminate the mindless television or a television that's just not A plus. Uh, that's that could be a, a thousand hours a year. Right. And I think it's all about just sometimes recognizing what habits do you get into, what ruts do you get stuck into, because again, we do the same thing every day for the most part. And if you added that up and said, what do I want to do differently? You have opportunity to build in whatever you want. You just have to be more proactive. Well, you could take that Spanish course or right. the tango class or get the motorcycle license. Actually, you could probably do all three of those things instead of Game of Thrones. Right. And... um you know, but there, but there's some uses of of social media. Uh, you know, Danica Patrick, the yes. race car driver. So she was on the podcast, and she said one way to maybe find your passion or things that you love is look at all your Instagram photos. What are they? What are you excited about taking photos about? That might be a passion. Like let's right. say you take photos of food all the time. Maybe take a cooking class, or if you take photos of. I don't know. I don't know what else. If you take photos of when you're with friends, spend more time with friends. So things like that is, is I thought that was an interesting way to, a real interesting way to use social media as opposed I think to just so mindless. too, right. And so many people will say that to me, well, I don't even know what I want to do or I have no idea. And um, we, we lose sight of that. So just get out there and try, do new things. And I think that's a great, a tangible way to say, what do I love or what am I attracted to? Yeah, it's funny. Like whenever, whenever I say to myself, I don't know what to do or I don't know what I need right now. There's usually something else wrong going on in my life. So uh, I usually have to figure out that what that is and it could take some time. So maybe I'm in a bad uh, work situation or a bad relationship situation, whether it's a friendship or a relationship. There's usually something off in other ways that's clouding my ability to think about myself and my own needs. And so how would you... How do you figure out what your needs are? How do you figure out what your needs are? So, you know, I guess it's for me personally, sometimes it's about like taking a step back and figure out the balance between work in my personal life and time doing the things I love versus time. And I love my work, but I don't want my work to be 23 hours out of the day. So uh, it's just, I think, taking stock, reflecting sometimes, figuring out what's the bigger picture? What do I want to do differently? Um and asking myself questions and, you know, I don't want to ruminate. I don't want to spend too much time overthinking things, all the things I talk about in the book, but at the same time to spend enough time reflecting to think um, if somebody looked at my my calendar or somebody else were to look at my checkbook, if somebody else looked at um, who I'm spending my time with, what would they say about me? And is that accurate reflection of who I want to be or do I want to change that and become somebody different? Well, when was the last time you felt your work-life balance was out of whack? Like I imagine... You know, you uh, as a writer, you go in cycles. Like you're writing a book, and then you're publicizing a book. Right. So, publicizing a book means you go on podcasts like this. You do other media. You do a lot of social media, probably more than you usually do. You give lectures. Uh, I don't know if you if there's any kind of book tour. Those sort of have gone away for the most part. But uh, when was the last time you felt like, oh my gosh, I'm really hating my work life balance right now? Um, probably when I'm in the th- thick of writing the book and because I I write a lot of my other jobs involve writing for websites and that sort of a thing. So then when I'm, I'm doing all of those things, plus then writing a book and I have to find time to write the book, I spend so much time by myself sort of behind a desk just writing, typing, typing, typing that uh, I could easily forget to 
get out and do other things that I just spend all my hours. And so I have to be really careful when I'm writing a book to make sure that I build in enough people time and enough social time and enough fun stuff too. So, so how do you figure out what to subtract? So you could, for instance, subtract writing, but but that's your work. Right. And you're getting paid for that. Or you could subtract uh, your tennis lessons. I'm, I'm making that up. I don't know if you take tennis lessons, but that might be something you you love. So you don't want to, you don't want to subtract something you love for something you, you hate, or you could subtract, uh, social media or television, whatever. Like, how do you figure out what to subtract to bring yourself back into balance in those moments? Or do you just say, do you just suck it in and say, okay, I've got to get through this for three more months and then I'm free. Yes. It's more like that to figure out, um, rather than try to keep my life in balance at every moment about how am I going to balance out the whole year. So if I knew from January to June, I was going to be writing a book and I was going to be really, really busy. I was going to have to put a lot of things off. So then I just made sure, how am I going to make the next six months balance that out, spend more time with friends and family and getting out. And of course, marketing the book means I'm not just at home writing, I'm out doing lots of stuff. So as long as I feel like my whole year was a little bit in balance, I can handle weeks and months not being as balanced as I'd like. But what if you're what if you're lying to yourself? Like, what if you write the book? Okay, now your publisher says, "Amy, now you've got to do six months of promoting the book." Uh, so we want you on Instagram twice a day. You should do YouTube videos. You should go on podcasts. You should do get write your articles on LinkedIn. Try to get syndicated elsewhere. Go on the Today Show, uh, and then after those six months, the publisher says, "Okay, now." Amy, you got to write what do mentally strong teenagers don't do and then what do mentally strong entrepreneurs don't do and and so on. And so it never ends. Fortunately, now I feel like I'm in a place in my life where I can say no, I can set limits. I don't feel like I have to do anything. Like if there's something I really don't want to do, I can say no, thank you. And for me, I think the balance is more, I, I would probably work 24-7 if I didn't catch myself. And I don't even so know why. So you have why. to be aware of some internal trigger like, oh, this doesn't feel good anymore. Right, right. And then to remind myself, is this really how you want to spend your life? And the question I always ask myself, like my mom was 51 when she passed away. So I think, well, that's not that far into the future for me anymore. So I'm turning I 51 in uh, 13 days. So, <laughs> right. Don't scare me. Well, and so for me, I just remember, okay, how do I, you know, is that how I would have wanted to have spent my time working so that I could then hoard my money? Not really. <laughs> and so to just keep that bigger thing in mind of, you know, it would, would be great when I'm, hopefully I live to be a hundred and I look back over my life and is that how I would have wanted to spend it? No. So I just purposely build in more stuff with friends and family and having fun. What, um, uh, what's, what's, what are your rules for no? Like what's the last thing you said no to and, and, and why? What's the last big thing you said no to? Uh, so I've been doing this Facebook live series, uh, every, Wednesday at noon, and uh, I thought it was going to be 13 weeks. And yesterday, my publisher said, let's do this every week uh, in perpetuity. And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> and and so why did you say no to that? Um, you know, it takes, it's not a bad idea if right. you're the publisher. Right, absolutely. But for me, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. My hair is actually curly. I have to straighten my hair. I have to get the lighting ready. I live on a boat most of the year. So to get to get the boat ready and to make sure it's quiet, I mean, it takes a lot of time in order to... Right, so people don't realize, an, uh, if they say, oh, it's just an hour, one hour a week, like right. out of the 168 hours you're yes. awake, uh, or, or whatever the math is, uh, but they don't realize, A, there's hours beforehand, there's hours afterwards, because probably after a Facebook Live, you have to uh, re-energize in some way. Right. It's probably like really like a four-hour yes. thing. Yes, yes. And, and four hours a week for 50 weeks is 200 hours. Again, you can 
take 17 different courses online and learn Spanish and get a pilot's license, like, or whatever you want to do. Right. Right. And so then when I was really thinking about that, I thought, you know, is that really how I want to spend every Wednesday? And I enjoy doing Facebook Live, but I don't enjoy it enough to say, I'm going to carve out a half a day a week and devote it to just that. But that's an interesting point, too. You enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So what's, how do, you, how do you determine in the gray area when you're enjoying something, but you still want to say no? There's, I feel like there's a gray area there. I enjoy it, but there's stuff I enjoy even more. So even writing more articles, if I spent that half a day saying I'm going to put out more content through writing, I think that's what I want to do right now. Uh, now that I'm not writing a book, I'm happy to get back to doing more writing. So that's what I'd rather do at the moment. So so uh, given you know the social media landscape and how people are, you know, the attention spans of, you know, people supposedly going down over years uh, uh, and compared with like three years ago or four years ago. When, when did you first come on the podcast? When did you write uh, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do? 2014. Yeah, so now it's 2019. I've noticed that articles, and I'm a, a writer at heart. That's how I started. That's what I've been doing for uh, almost 30 years now. Uh, but recently since tw between 2014 and I would say between 2013 and now people simply read less Yes, and, and combine that with there's more articles out there by, I hate to be critical, but there's more articles out there by mediocre writers. Mm -hmm. So you have these platforms that used to be, um, oh, you know, Amy, you're a great writer. Can you write for a platform? Many of these writers are, many of these platforms are now more interested in sucking up the ad dollars, so they become open platforms, open to everyone. So, every, so instead of a hundred people writing for that platform, a million people are writing for that right. platform. So you have two things going on: people don't want to read as much, and a million people are competing for that reduced attention span. So maybe instead of writing the articles, you should do the Facebook lives because that's how, if you want to get your message across. That's the skill you need to develop, even though you love the writing. How do you deal with that issue? Yeah, well, there's always that pressure, right? What should you be doing differently? And how do you get in front of the biggest audience and the most people? But I guess it's not always my goal is to say, you know, I want to reach a, a bazillion people anymore. Uh, if I like writing and I feel like I can communicate my message through writing, why not write? Even if it doesn't reach as many people, I'm okay with that. That's, that's so interesting because I feel like it's like, oh, oh, you know, you said earlier, how do you measure, in, in, in one case, how do you measure your client's happiness? Because she brought up happiness and you tried to help her figure out how do you measure it. How do you measure the success of, let's say, your, your writing or, your, or beyond, beyond your writing, your message that you're delivering? Because you have, you have, you're more than just telling a story. You're also delivering a, a message and a, and, a, and a vision of how people could live their lives better and smarter. Uh, how do you measure the success of that? For me, I think it's just about uh, having freedom and flexibility, and I love the fact I don't have a day job anymore. I mean, the first day I took that I wasn't working at a day job, I went to the refrigerator at noon because that was when I always ate lunch at work, and this light bulb went off of, you can eat lunch whenever you want. It doesn't have to be at 12 on the dot. So I think now just having control over my time and having the freedom to pick if I want to eat lunch at 10 in the morning or 2 in the afternoon, I can do that. And as long as I'm making enough money that I can survive comfortably, I think I'm happy and successful. But let's say writing requires you to keep those income levels even flat or moving up. Uh, let's say 
you have to be a presence in these other social media and build that presence and spend a lot of time building that presence to keep this sort of attention focused on your work, even at the same levels it was before. Uh, how do you how do you weigh that in? Right, because there's I mean there's aspects of my job that I don't love. Right, <laughs> when it comes to certain things in social media, I don't love it. I don't hate social media, but I also I don't like. I'm going to announce exactly everything I'm doing all day, every day on social media. It's not even that interesting, but I don't love to be on it all the time. So to figure out uh, how much time do I want to devote to it? And we were talking earlier about, I just reached out to a company to help me out with Instagram because I find it to be cumbersome sometimes to be posting on Instagram all the time. And I have so much content out there. I just wanted to figure out now, how do I take all of that content and at least reuse it, put it out there in a way that's helpful. So whether I make video clips out of the videos I've already created so that I can put them on Instagram and Facebook, or if somebody takes a, an article I wrote and turns it into a, an infographic that I can share, I don't want to be doing all the behind the scenes stuff. So in that sense, it made sense to just hire somebody else to take my material and make it Instagram worthy and then right, I can post it. Because if you wrote an article for some magazine, uh, to let's say promote a book or just an article in general, uh, many, many people haven't read it. Mo most of the 7 billion people in the world haven't read it. Right. Um, so it could be by putting it in infographic form and putting it on Instagram so people could absorb the content in a different way, you hit an entirely different audience. It's good for your promoting your brand and your book. Pe people are no longer a book. They're kind of like, uh, uh, you know, you're like Amy Inc. about this message of 13 things mentally strong people don't do. And, then, and it's, you've carved out various ways of expressing it. And so now you're basically saying, okay, I write these articles, but I'm not going to make the infographic. Um, you hire, you delegate that. It's still the same content, just reusing it. Right, exactly. And I think I'm finally getting, you know, here it is 2019. I'm finally starting to get savvy about that, that I don't have to do everything, that I can contract some of that stuff out. But that, And is it successful? Like, do you find that that actually does increase engagement with with your brand, with your with your message? Yeah, already. I mean, it's only been a couple of weeks, but already that, and it's stuff that I already had out there. I had keynote speeches that are have been recorded. I had the footage. I just never did anything with it. So obviously, since I have it right there, it doesn't take much to just make it into little video snippets or to, if I have the content out there for articles, why not use it in a way that makes it more social media friendly? Yeah, and then, and you don't have to do it yourself. You outsource. Right. So... Um, all right, so let's let's see some other things. Thirteen uh, things mentally strong women shouldn't do. Uh, this this chapter I really do feel uh, was more about women than men. Uh, they don't they don't stay silent. Yeah. mentally strong women. So because I do feel uh, women around a conference room table are not you know they're raising their hand more and the men are shouting out ideas. Right. And that's of course a blanket stereotype, but I it's something that. It, I've anecdotally noticed quite yes. a bit. Yeah, and that's just it. So studies will show that too. But like you say, we don't need studies to know that that um, men tend to be much more vocal in general. In an and, annoying way, I'll even say that too. Right. Like they'll shout out bad ideas. Right. Right. And that men, you know, tend to be more boastful and brag about themselves. Women tend to downplay their success more. And then when it comes to speaking up, women often need more of an invitation. And it's not to say that men are right and women are wrong or anything like that, but to just take notice of it. And even in social situations, when there's men and women standing around, just take notice of how often women are speaking. And it's one of those things that once you notice it, you can't unnotice it. And it just becomes so glaringly obvious, I think, after a while. And this chapter, I was a little nervous about 
writing it because I didn't want to imply that women who have stayed silent are somehow weak, whether it, we're dealing with sexual assault or something like that. But I just wanted to make it clear that staying silent, not talking about things that have happened to you, drains your mental strength over time. And I'm not saying you have to go to the authorities or you have to necessarily tell everybody what's happened to you, but just make sure you tell somebody, whether it's a friend or family member or somebody, so that we're talking about some of these issues and so that women feel like they have a voice. Right, so it's two types of silence. It's a, it's kind of this massive traumatic silence when trauma happens to you and you don't want to admit right. it or, or talk about it. And then there's the silence, kind of the everyday silence that allows other people in the workplace or the relationship or friendship to kind of move past you because you're being silent about your needs right. or your ideas or whatever. Exactly. And I just really wanted to bring to light some of the things that I think women experience and men aren't likely to, whether it's that you get do you get catcalled when you walk down the street? <laughs> uh, me, never. I wish just once I would be, <laughs> but it has never once happened in my life. And, you know, it's something that as women, I think, uh, you know, we, we just tolerate it or we got used to it or just, I, and I just think I can't imagine what it would be like to not have to worry about some of that stuff. And I'm so. What's it, what's it like? Like what, what, what happens? You walk down the street and just some guy passing whistles at you or what happens? <laughs> So, for instance, when I was walking here today, um, I came out of a store and I was just turning the corner to to come in here and a man starts walking with me and says, you look really nice. Where are you going? What the hell? Right. Nobody has ever done that to me, <laughs> man or woman. And, you know, I think, it, you know, probably there was times in my life where I would have found it to be flattering if somebody were to yell, hey, you're beautiful. Definitely not anymore. It just disgusts me. And I... Um, and in talking to women when I was writing this book too, some of them thought, some of them said that like, oh, I don't mind it or it makes me feel really good about myself. And some of the other ones said, you know, it, I change the way I dress. So I try to, you know, wear a, a big coat when I'm walking around so that men don't say anything and I feel horrible when I have to walk down a certain block because I know what's going to happen or people are going to whistle at me. And, I, you know, this chapter just, I don't know, I just feel passionate about this chapter because I can't imagine what it would be like to not have to worry about a lot of these things. And I'm hoping that, the world will change slowly where we don't do that stuff anymore. So so what's what's the advice that you give? You know, when it comes to like, like catcalling, then it's usually not safe to say anything. You don't want to yell back at somebody, especially if there's a group of men standing there. But I think just by women talking about it more, I know plenty of men that I've talked to, like they have no idea that that's offensive. <laughs> they really think that, you know, just by... Right, like men think, and I'm not saying I've ever done this, but I've heard this given as advice uh, men say, I'm just going to tell one woman a day she's beautiful on the street because right. it'll make her feel better and then yes. I'm doing a good thing. They don't realize it might not make her feel better. It might be annoying. Right, right. And it's uncomfortable. It's cringeworthy sometimes. But like men actually think there's a group, some men actually think this is viable advice yes. to make their lives and other people's lives better. Yes. And I've had friends, male friends who have read my book now who have said, you know, I used to do that. And so I ask them, why did you used to do that? And they say, you know, I didn't know. And like most of them said, I did it when I was 18 or 20, not recently, but they would say, I just, I didn't know that that's not what you do. And so I'm hoping, you know, in light of everything that's going on in the world, that we'll just start to spread the message that you don't need to comment on random women's appearance when they're walking around or that women don't particularly enjoy, you know, rude and crude comments or being whistled at when they're just walking to work. What about what about what about the the different issue of silence like in the silence in the workplace? I you know, as we bring more light to this, I hope that 
leaders will recognize this when you're sitting at the meeting table and men are just talking over each other and the women haven't gotten any airtime. Just invite the women to talk. Say, hey, what's your idea about this? Or if there's a man who always interrupts a woman, step in and stop it too and to set the norm that women have a voice and they can speak up. So that's advice for leaders and managers. What's the advice for women? When you get interrupted sometimes to say, oh, I wasn't done with my thought, speak back up. It's okay to say, you know, I, I still have more to say. Or even when it's uncomfortable in a meeting to speak up, go ahead and do it anyway. I I have a friend who um, I run into at different business conferences or whatever, and her strategy was at the end of every session when it was open up to the speakers done speaking and it's open up to Q&A, she would instantly raise her hand and like even stand up, raise her hand and stand up. She wouldn't even know what her question was going to be. She just wanted to get called on. So she was giving herself a mini challenge. But uh, this, this that was her way of practicing to not be not fall into the silence of the, the Q&A session and just listen. She wanted to, she wanted, if she was called on, she would think of a question no matter what. And then that's how she stopped uh, just falling into that pattern of listening. I think that's brilliant. I think if you were going to go to a meeting, maybe you have a goal. I'm going to speak up one one time every meeting. I'm going to offer one idea uh, every time I go into some sort of session or seminar or something like that. And if you have a goal in mind and you keep doing it, after a while, it becomes second nature. Uh, this one, and again, that was the chapter where I most felt, okay, this chapter probably is mostly for women. Every other chapter I felt applied to me. So like this next chapter, uh, they don't downplay their success. Uh, for years, I would always downplay my success. It was like mm -hmm. I was, I wouldn't say ashamed of it. I just figured it's annoying to to not downplay. It's, it's, it's better, a, a more humble quality to cultivate downplaying my success. Were you afraid of like appearing arrogant? If you, I was afraid of appearing arrogant. I also don't think it's as interesting mm -hmm. somehow. Uh, I think people are more interested in troubles. Yep, <laughs> and and that's why story. You know, there's never a story where Luke Skywalker is starts off as the Jedi Jedi Master ruling the universe, and just the whole story is about that. He starts off in trouble, right? And and he's in trouble pretty much through all of the movies, even now. Now he's dead. So, uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of our storytelling society, our our storytelling species, is more about problems than than solutions. It is, and you know, when I looked at women with this issue in particular, though, I found that women struggle more than men in general to take compliments. That they often feel like. Uh, men don't like ambitious women. So when they looked at mm. classrooms, college classrooms, single women don't raise their hand nearly as often as, say, married women, because they, and the fear was, if I look ambitious, then, then the men in the class aren't going to be attracted to me or somehow I'll um, scare them away. So I just I thought, you know, and for women to just accept a compliment, it's tough to say thank you when somebody says something nice. And I know plenty of men struggle with this too. And since I've started talking about this, men will say, well, no, if somebody says I like your shirt, I just say, oh, this old thing, I bought it for $10. Because I can't just say thank you because I'm afraid I'll sound arrogant or narcissistic. Yeah, no, I've, I feel I've lost critical career opportunities because either I've downplayed success or I didn't want to let other people acknowledge my success and and push me forward. Yeah. So so uh, it's a very harmful thing. You have to be able to be comfortable with success. 
Right. And I think for a lot of us, it's about not feeling comfortable in our own skin or feeling like we're unworthy somehow of the success that we had. So then when somebody compliments you on it or somebody asks you about your success, it's hard to then be honest and say, yeah, I've, I've achieved these things or I put in all this hard work. Uh, so instead we sort of downplay it, minimize it, or we don't want to make other people feel bad. Yeah. If, if somebody else thinks I'm successful, then maybe they, they're going to feel bad about their life. So and they're not going to like me. Right, right. So then I'll just you know minimize my achievement somehow and, and that will help them. So how do you deal with that feeling? I think sometimes it's just about practicing, recognizing when you do it, acknowledging that it's okay to to say that you're doing okay in life and you don't have to talk about how great you are, but maybe talk about the hard work or the effort that you put in to get there. People will respect that if they knew that you weren't an overnight success, but they know that you've put in hours and hours of hard work and that you struggle too, then they can honestly respect your your achievement much better than when you say, oh, it was nothing uh, to, to get to where I am today. And just say thank you. Somebody compliments you. For most of us, that's really uncomfortable, but to just yeah. get in the habit of saying thank you and then sit with that discomfort. You know, it's interesting because we're ta- we, we haven't obviously covered all 13 things. We've covered maybe four or five or six of them. But uh, with each thing, you give different, you know, you tell different stories of, of yourself and patients and studies and other people. And you give different exercises like write a kind letter to yourself or be aware when you're having this overthinking or be aware when you're doing this comparison and then this is what you do. It's hard to remember all the techniques. And so I want to contrast this with like, I feel self-help books are filled with techniques. I don't view this as a self-help book. You can view this as a self-help book, but it's, it doesn't remind me of other self-help books. Uh, I feel these are real practical techniques to, to improve your life. But you know, what, how do you keep track of all the different exercises and techniques I need to do to be mentally stronger. There's a lot of things. There are. I think if you just picked your worst habit, if you looked at the list of 13 and said, which one of these things do I struggle with the most? And then pick one thing to do uh, differently. How are you going to change that? And just start really small. You know, that There's no way if you took all 13 and said, all right, there's five exercises about each one. That's overwhelming. But just start really small with just yeah, one. Yeah, it's very anxiety producing. Oh, I got to do these five things for each one of these. Right. And nobody would do it. So I think just figure out which one do you struggle with and then figure out which one is probably, which exercise will probably help me the most. So this is a macro way of applying that they don't avoid tough challenges chapter to the tough challenge of becoming mentally stronger. Right. So like, you know, start off small, try maybe one or two p- simple things or, or simplify them for yourself and just get better and better at one and then maybe two and then maybe three and so on. I think, you know, and if we looked at it, if you talk about mental strength, similar to physical strength, if you said, okay, I'm going to get lean and muscular, I mean, there's a million and one different things you could do out there. And depending on which website you read or which book you read and which techniques should you fast, should you just eat all this protein or try this diet or lift these weights, and you'd just be overwhelmed with it all. So just pick one one thing that you want to start with. Pick that one worst habit. Maybe you eat too much junk food in the morning, so you're going to say, I'm not going to eat a donut for breakfast anymore. And just pick one thing to get rid of in your life, and then you just start moving forward after that. You know what would be great? You should make uh, the Mentally Strong calendar. And so there's, you know, uh, for each day, there's the list of the exercises. And all you want to do is maybe in the beginning – check one a day. Like, yeah. Don't break the chain. Um, so first you want to check one a day. Maybe later you could check two a day, check three a day, but you just don't want to break the chain. You don't want to have a day where you didn't check anything. I think that would be great. And 
you know, because I get that all the time. People are like, what do I do? How do I keep moving? So calendar is probably a brilliant idea. Thank you. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, like Ryan Holiday wrote these books about stoicism, but then he wrote The Daily Stoic, which is, you know, just like one passage a day about stoicism and can you apply it today, like right. this passage. So, it's a, And that book, I think, sold more copies than his other books about stoicism. I don't know that for sure, but it, he he essentially built a business around that. Um, I see where I have... I've bookmarked all over the place and I've outlined. The problem is I outline things and then I have to like find, I mean, I, I underline things and then I have to find where I underlined. Um, it's all over. Uh, oh yeah, it's like, I don't, I don't know why I bracketed this, but I did practice mindfulness skills. And this is the don't overthink everything. I think a lot of people uh, get anxious now when they hear the word meditation or mindfulness. Right. Because it's become such a part of self-help culture. Like, oh, I've got to meditate. And a lot of people don't want to sit in a lotus position for 15, 20, 30 minutes for a million different reasons. They say, I can't do it. They say, I don't have the attention span for it. They say it hurts. Um, but mindfulness doesn't have to mean any of that. Like maybe define your version of mindfulness. Just being in the moment, doing whatever it is that you're doing. So if you were eating a piece of candy, just sit there and eat a piece of candy. If you're uh, going for a walk, just look around at the scenery and enjoy walking. But again, like if I'm worried about something, the worry is an addiction. And, you know, sometimes, uh, and you talk about this in the book, you say, and I love this technique. I, I do this technique myself, which is that if you find yourself over worrying or overthinking about something, uh, make a, an appointment with yourself for maybe later that day right? and say, okay, I'm going to do all my worrying then. So I used to do this. I used to wake up at three in the morning, constantly worrying about money. Like for whatever reason, that was the time I would wake up. And so I would tell I would tell myself, look, I always wake up at this time. I'm clearly not thinking rationally. I'm going to think about this again at three in the afternoon instead of three in the morning. And at, by three in the afternoon, I wouldn't even care anymore. Right. So that's really the idea is that I'm not, you're not going to think about it later because it's not really that important to overthink. But um, uh, again, a lot of times though, I get addicted to worrying about something and it's really hard to sort of catch yourself. A lot of these exercises that you have are about catching yourself falling into this behavior and then developing, the, developing that muscle to pull yourself up out of the behavior. Right. And I think for a lot of people, they feel stuck or they don't recognize they're doing it or they think that they're somehow going to solve the problem in the end. So for the worrying, people will think, well, somehow worrying is good for me. Or if I worry enough about something, it'll either go away or I can prevent it from happening. Or you can uh, solve the problem. Right. And so just recognize, okay, I'm not problem solving. I'm just ruminating or I'm just worrying about 101 things and it's not actually helpful. And, you know, back to the mindfulness thing, sometimes it's just a matter if you find yourself worrying about something is just like, just what are your senses? What do I hear right now? Pay attention to what you hear. What do I see? Pay attention to what you see for a minute. What do I what do I smell? And just engage your senses just for even like 20 seconds and give yourself a break from all that worrying and just be in the moment. And I think that's a skill. And the more you practice it, the easier it becomes. Yeah, I think people, I, I, I think the important thing there is the 20 seconds. Like mm -hmm. you can, people think meditation is this formal thing I need a guru and a mantra and, or I need to do this mindfulness for, cause the, they studied and uh, they put electrodes on people practicing mindfulness. And this is what happened with Buddhist monks after six hours a day of mindfulness. But, but that's all kind of hardcore. Right. And, and you could do it in 10, 20 seconds a minute and 
like you, and the other important phrase is your word uses practice. People often talk about meditation. Oh, what's your particular practice? Some people say, oh, I have a Zen meditation practice, or mm -hmm. I have a transcendental meditation practice, or I have a Tibetan Buddhist meditation practice. But the key word is practice. It's really just practicing. It's not about this gaining superpowers while you're meditating. It's about practicing for the other 23 hours, 59 minutes of the day. Right. And I can't tell you how many people come into my therapy office and say, well, I'm not good at it. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, of course you're not good at it. You're not supposed to be good at it. It's a skill you have to learn. And that just means you need more practice and you keep practicing and, and that you don't have to be harsh and think, gosh, you know, my mind wanders when I try to meditate or I just, I can't focus for more than 10 seconds. That's fine. Just keep working on it. Yeah. The other thing is it, it's really boring. Right. Like meditation for an hour is, is super boring. Right. And painful depending on what you, how you do it. Right. And we're our fast paced world. We're used to so much going on all at once and you take all that away and you think, well, what do I do now? Yeah. So, so I think that's really important. Let me see. Um, there's so many things here. I've got, I've got underlined. Hold on. I'm gathering my thoughts. silent one. Oh, this is super important. And this, this is a common theme among many of the podcast guests. They don't blame themselves when something goes wrong. I love this chapter. Like, uh, uh, you, you know, on the one, and I wanted to ask you about, cause on the one hand you have to take ownership right. when things go wrong. You can't blame, you can't blame other people either necessarily. Like I remember in when the internet stocks burst in 2001 or whenever people encouraged me like, oh, you should sue your stock. Everyone's suing their stockbroker. You'll get some money back. And, and I, you know, I considered it for about a half a second, but then I said to myself, you know, it's not really honest. Like I made all the decisions to buy mm -hmm. these stocks and I got to take ownership of my own grief here. Uh, so that's a little bit opposite of, you know, what, like I was blaming myself. So what's, how do you, how do you, deal with that? I think sometimes about figuring out what percentage is your responsibility. You know, sometimes we, I've sat down with clients before and we actually kind of have a pie chart, like what percentage of this problem is actually due directly to your behavior. And, you know, I'd have, let's say a mom who would come in and say, my kid has ADHD. I drank a cup of coffee when I was two months pregnant. So clearly it's my fault that my child has ADHD. And we would just, okay, well, rationally, let's figure out what's the likelihood that that one cup of coffee and the caffeine caused your child's ADHD, 100%, 90%, 50%. But that's an extreme area because, like, I could just listen to that and say, obviously, the cup, one cup of coffee didn't cause her child's ADHD. But what's something where that was, like, gray area? So maybe somebody would say, um, I guess if we went back to the parenting thing, they have a kid with a, with a behavior problem. And mm. maybe it's a, a single parent who says, I didn't give my child much attention for the last however many years because I've been working. So maybe my child does feel kind of neglected. So then we sit down and we figure out, well, what's the actual responsibility? Or um, in a failed marriage, well, what, how much of that is your fault? Maybe it is 75%. Maybe somebody said, okay, I cheated. So maybe it's 95%. Um, and that's okay if that's really how much it is. And I think just talking about it sometimes, again, that's where externalizing it is helpful. If somebody else came to me and said, this is what happened, how much blame would I tell them they should take? Maybe it's 50%. But, and to know that when you do, let's say it's 95%, maybe it's 100% your fault because you really messed up on something, then what are you going to do about it? Um, one of the things that we know is when people tend to blame themselves, 
too much is that they blame their character rather than their behavior. Mm. So they say, I'm a bad person because I messed up, rather than saying, I'm an okay person, but I messed up. Because we know when you blame your character, then moving forward, you don't feel like there's any hope for redemption or that you can't do anything different, that you aren't going to make better choices. And in the book, I talk about sort of one of those examples of a mom who um, didn't believe her kids when they said they were abused by their stepdad. And she's right. She messed up and it was a terrible, a terrible thing. But if she spent the rest of her life stuck in this cycle of toxic self-blame, she'd probably never be a nice person. Because if you think I'm a bad person, then you're not going to, when you see an opportunity to do something good, you don't take it or you don't go out there and you can never make up for it. But also she's just not going to have a good life and she still deserves to have a good life going forward. Right. And so uh, I think when you recognize, all right, I did mess up. You know, what did you learn from it? How do you go forward? How do you um, how do you recognize that you made a mistake, but you're not necessarily a bad person? So it's not necessarily about you know assuming some of the blame and then someone else takes another part of the blame. It's sort of like, okay, maybe it's your fault and you take ownership of that. But now, how do you move forward? Rather right. than just like being steeped in the blame. Because I think there's a lot of that now. We just want to point fingers at other people or it's not all my fault or this person did this or I only made this mistake because of X, Y, and Z. And that's that's what everybody does. That's right. the, the average behavior I feel is to blame someone else for your problems. And, you know, to look at am I looking for an explanation or an excuse? And then and there's a big difference. So if you're just looking for an explanation and accepting personal responsibility, that's helpful. But when you're just making an excuse and blaming external circumstances and other people, that's when it gets into the unhealthy territory. And now you've, you've seen so you've seen not only your own situation, but you've seen so many other people. And I think when you see, when you, when you have clients, like when you're a therapist, you could see their change in behavior and how they're potentially following your advice or the advice of others or whatever. Um, I think for yourself, it's harder to see because yes, you could say I'm improving, but I don't know what I would be like if I hadn't done these things. Like, let's say I take this book and I say, okay, well, I'm going to do everything in this book. And there's all these amazing exercises and all these problems that Amy's identified that I have that I could move past to be mentally stronger. And let's say I start doing these things and I feel like, oh, I'm a little mentally stronger. It's, it's working. I still don't know how I would be if I hadn't done these exercises. So it's hard to it's hard to sometimes measure the success of advice or 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 self help or right you know someone else's experiences. Like I've had you know over four hundred amazing people, including you, six times on this podcast, and and they all tell me amazing stories about how they you know survived you know horrible situations and they became you know the best in the world at what they do. And I keep thinking to myself, should I be better than I am right now? Because I've heard from all the best people in the world. Like, am I, the, what, I don't know, like, how has it made me better? So I always try to figure this out because I'm, I'm doing this. I'm not a journalist. I'm doing this. I've asked you all the questions I've asked you are questions I'm, problems I'm having. So, and that's what I do with every guest. And so I always try to wonder, what am I learning from all of these things? Am I actually putting these things into practice? But it's hard to measure. It is. And, you know, when we talk about mental strength, it would be much easier, like physical strength, you know, can I lift this many weights and am I getting better? If you have a trainer in a gym, you could measure it. Like, oh, okay, this week I did, you know, this number of pounds, the next week is this number of pounds plus five and and so on. Right. So I wish we had a a tool that would say, okay, I'm I'm a little mentally stronger today than I was yesterday. We don't have that yet. (laughs) But so I think it's just about just reflecting and you have to evaluate in your own life. Am I doing a little bit better? And to 
take a look at last week, last month, last year. Are you handling situations better? Are you trying new things? Are you facing fears? Um, to ask yourself those tough questions. I, I find, for me, I probably handle tough situations a lot better. Uh, and not just since the beginning of this podcast, but since the beginning of my own process of trying to get over depression and grief and, and loss. And, uh, you know, ever since I started writing about this stuff, like oh, about 10 years ago, uh, I found I've gotten a lot better at dealing with tough situations, a lot, a lot better at learning new things and learning new skills. But I think the problem is because I've gotten better at these tough situations, I take on too many tough situations knowing I can, you know, handle it better. Right, right. The bar keeps going higher yeah. and higher and higher. And yeah, I don't actually, you know, just deal with my tough situations and then keep on rolling happily. I, I bring on more uh, tough situations until I'm overwhelmed again. Right. And so I think that's when it comes back to what's your definition of success? And yeah. how do you know if you're if you're living according to your values or your priorities in the in the place that you want them to be? And I think it's constant adjustment and figuring that out of how much, you know, because I think there's that temptation to always take things to the next level, the next level. But sometimes you have to ask, is that worth it? Do I really need to go to the next level? Do I need to put myself into, will that shake up my priorities to the extent that I'm no longer living according to my values? Or is it okay to say I'm doing okay as I am right now? You know, a lot of people who write books or, I mean, there's there's, there's always a, a certain arrogance to writing a book because mm -hmm. you have to think, okay, A, I'm going to be able to sit down and write well enough that people are going to be interested in, in my writing and what I have to say. And B, I have something important enough that the other billion people, you know, who might right. potentially be in this market are going to be interested in. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Like you, you almost need arrogance to, in a good way to write. You mm -hmm. need, let's call it self-confidence. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, then it's easily, it's easy to, get deluded into thinking, okay, well, I need big numbers for this to show that I'm having impact. And I always try to, I try to remind myself, um, no matter what your impact on the world is, and no matter how many goals you achieve, no one's going to remember them in a few generations. Mm. Nobody. Unless maybe, maybe now things are different because they look at it all up on Instagram, but. And, you know, and I think that's an important point. And then to know, all right, somebody that makes a big impact on the world and we don't, Years later, nobody remembers. So we think, well, you know, if I have this little small snippet of information I put out there, then a hundred years from now, is it going to be relevant? Is anybody going to know? And it, I think it helps put things in perspective, though, sometimes. So then, what am I? What's my purpose in in putting this information out there? Am I helping somebody today? You can't control what happens a hundred years from now, but um, and just keeping things in in perspective about what's important and how you want to live your life. I mean, I guess the healthy the healthy way is. And, and you've implied this is like, okay, how do I want to live my life? Am I making an income? And perhaps the healthiest way to look at this is I'm not trying to change 7 billion people. I'm trying to change maybe a handful of people and help them and have them say, oh, this book really helped me. And by getting it out there as wide as I can, within reason, I'll cheat. That's success. Right. And keeping in, in perspective what you can control. I can, I wrote a book. I can't control what stores pick the book up or how many people buy it or how many languages it's in. Um, but, but look at your, at, at the kind of umbrella, let's like, like take a broad definition of, of the industry of this book. Like, do you ever feel like, well, Dr. Phil sold 5 million copies of his books and he has three TV shows. I should be doing better than I am because 
I'm comparing myself to Dr. Phil and here's where I should be. Oh yeah, there's definitely those moments of, you know, how, how come I'm not- no, I'm not criticizing Dr. Phil, by the way. I'm just, right. I'm just saying, he happens to be a sponsor of this podcast. So gotta, I wanna say that, but uh, uh, his name came to mind. Right, right. And I think it's so easy, you know, obviously when Dr. Phil, he's had books come out at the same time as mine, well, who's going to go on all the all the TV shows? They pick Dr. Phil over Amy Morin, of course, to be a guest to talk about his new book. And so, yeah, sometimes I have those moments of like, oh, you know, what what do I need to be doing differently? But then I just remember, uh, you know, I can't control all of those things. The best I can do is write a good book the best I can, and then whatever happens, happens. And so, so, so there's a lot of commonalities between the exercises. And again, each exercise is individually interesting. Like, writing a kind letter to yourself is different than, um, you know, learning from someone you're comparing yourself to. Um, but some of the commonalities are, okay, learning when you're engaging in this, engaging in one of these 13 behaviors that mentally strong people don't do, like at least recognizing that even if you continue to engage in the behavior, just like if, if you're worrying, if you're overthinking something, at least say I'm overthinking, even if you yeah. don't solve the problem. You could keep on overthinking, but a, a small way to solve a problem is to just recognize that this one of these 13 mentally, you know, bad behaviors is happening. And then the second thing is, is sort of practicing the muscle or exercising the muscle to pull yourself out of the behavior. And maybe you can measure that in simple ways at first and more difficult ways later. So it's, those are commonalities in a lot of these exercises. Right. I just, you know, for people to raise awareness, to have the language, I think when it comes to overthinking, sometimes people are like, I don't know, I worry a lot or I uh, tend to tend to think or I can't stop replaying stuff in my head. So there's just knowing, okay, that means it's overthinking. Being able to label it, recognize it, and then figure out, well, this is a choice. Is there something I could do differently? Opens the door to at least recognizing yeah, you have options in life of how you spend your time and what you're going to do. Right, and you could decide then, um, I mean, some of these things overlap, so you can decide, uh, uh, okay, I, I'm overthinking, so I'm going to post, I'm going to make an appointment with myself to overthink at three in the afternoon, or you could say, um, overthinking because I'm comparing myself to someone else. So I'm going to study what I can learn from this person I'm comparing. I, I can view this person as an opinion maker than a competitor. Right. Um, so you can, there's so many fascinating exercises and you can kind of pick and choose the handful that are best for you or, or all of them, which is why I think that the calendar idea is neat because I'd like to sort of see all of these on one poster somehow and check them off by day. Like, did I, did I do one of these, you know, at least one or more of these per day would be great. And being reminded constantly of what these exercises are because they're so valuable and you've seen them work not only with your patients, but your, but yourself. So, so again, I think this is really valuable for men, for women, uh, I, I love a lot of these exercises. I'm sure we've probably talked about them before because I feel like some of them I do, even the more kind of strange ones, uh, I've sort of incorporated into my life a little bit. Uh, but, but I think it's really valuable for, for men or women. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing I also wanted to, to ask you just your opinion in general, this is a book about, you know, this is a book addressed to women, even if it's not about solutions just for women. Women, of course, have gone through, uh, you know, there's been entire different types of discussions around women this past year since the Me Too movement started. And there's all the this language like 
you know, are we living in a patriarchy or do are women treated unfairly in general in, in society? Uh, what's like your general take on these discussions? Like, do you think we're moving in the right direction? Do you think, uh, I don't know, what are, what are issues societally for, for women right now? Yeah, you know, I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, and I have to say, like, writing the book just really reminded me of how much progress we've made, but also how much how much improvement we still need to make. So whether we're talking about um, financial issues uh, with women or we're just talking about, like, catcalling, things that, you know, that we just need to change. And I'm hoping that uh, the more we talk about this stuff, the more that we, um, you know, like all the women that just finally got elected into positions in government. I'm just hoping that the more we keep talking about this, the more that we'll see, oh, okay, um, that women do have more opportunities than ever. But, you know, so many questions about women, or could a woman ever be a president? Can a woman actually, and the fact that we're still asking that question, do you think a woman could be the president? It's strange because we're telling little girls, you can be anything you want. And yet here we are all these years later, we've never seen a woman president and people are still asking, do you think a woman could be president? So, you know, my hope is for the next generation that they won't deal with a lot of the stuff that, that we have. But at the same time, I feel fortunate that I grew up in the generation that I did because you know, I wrote this story about the book, uh, in the book about the woman who ran a marathon in, mm. in late 60s, early 70s. We didn't think women could run 26 miles. That wasn't that long ago. Yeah, that was uh, in that story that was in the 1960s. They, they literally tried to, in your story, they literally tried to kick her out of the marathon. Right. She started and then like uh, an official ran over to her I was like you know you can't do this like why why did they and then and then the you know i guess the guy who was responding to her complaint wrote you know well that's the rules and she shouldn't have done this and um didn't really give like a, a smart answer he gave like kind of a stupid answer right. and uh that is so weird that like why do you think and this was just 40 50 years ago why do you think they were so concerned about her finishing that race right it's just horrifying that we thought women could, their bodies couldn't handle running 26 miles. That somehow a man's could, but a woman's, I don't know. I don't know if they felt threatened by the fact that this woman was going to prove that, yeah, women could run a marathon too. Somehow they were personally insulted. And she said, it was Catherine Switzer, she said she got hate mail for years from people who were angry that she finished the race. It's so bizarre to think about now. But at yeah, the like same what, time- what, what, what would the hate mail say? You know, that she was trying to prove something, that she shouldn't have done it that way, or that she got accused of entering the race by saying she was a man or by signing a man's name because she used her initials. And it was like all of these sorts of things about, you know, you shouldn't have done it, yet I don't think anybody had any rational reasons why right. it was so, a bad idea. So like, at least in the United States, something like that would certainly not happen now. So right. you can say, you can argue that in in any category that's similar to that, the direction has improved. Where do you think we might have a blind spot where things are still just as egregious? You know, I think leadership positions, you don't have to look mm -hmm. very far to see that, you know, women CEOs, they're just not existent compared to the level that men are. Or, uh, you know, I talk a lot about just the way that teachers treat girls compared to the way that they treat mm -hmm. boys and how parents do it. And it's subtle and it's ingrained. And I think we don't even notice it. Um, and really, the more I researched and wrote in the book, the more I just became aware of things. And I think, how did I not notice this? I'm a social worker by trade. And for years, there was a lot of things I think that I didn't notice. And then just in reflecting in my own life, how was I maybe treated a little bit differently? Or when I had foster kids, is, did I treat girls differently from boys? And how so? And so my hope is we'll just keep raising those issues, thinking about it and moving forward, figuring out how do we help 
um, women grow up with you know values that they know that we're not just saying you can be anything we, that you want, but we're actually showing them, yeah, you actually can. So, so, but that, that's interesting though because you never know like how far back the behavioral uh, differences start to occur, you know, based on parenting or whatever. Like when my oldest daughter was two years old, she really wanted a Barbie doll. And why is that? Like, so I think the initial research was that just girls' brains are different. Right. And I think the research now is different, but I don't know what the latest on this is. You know, I think we're figuring out that it's that little boys and girls aren't as different as we thought, right? And like, okay, you don't have to give the girls pink and you don't have to give them dolls. Um, that if you give them other stuff that maybe girls can are interested in cars and trucks too. So I don't think we're there yet, though, with figuring out how much of this is cultural and how much of it is is our influence on them. And my hope is we'll just keep figuring that out. And, and some of this has to be species, right? Because right. men are are bigger in general. Right. And that's why they were, if we don't, I guess we don't fully know what happened 80,000 years ago, but men were supposedly hunters and women were gatherers. Right. And that's, or that's the common belief about the species. I, I, I don't know. I can't vouch to say if it's true or not, but that's what people seem to believe. Uh, so some stuff, there might, there must be some differences between men and women. And how do we acknowledge that in society while still improving, you know, the, the the freedom and opportunities for women. And, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to just recognizing that that we've set, um, set men up for success in a lot of ways in life, that, you know, sort of the, the gold standard is, let's say we talk about boasting about your skills, that men tend to. You said you don't necessarily do that, but we know in general men, if they go into a job interview, are happy to overestimate their skills while women underestimate it. So just recognizing that, that maybe – the person who brags the most about their skills isn't the right person for the job necessarily just because they say they can do stuff. So I think just making some changes at the societal level of acknowledging some of the differences that we're seeing. And then, you know, I hope for more women to to figure out um, what kind of changes can you make in your life? How come, how have you been socialized in certain ways that makes you exhibit some certain bad habits? What changes do you want to make? But for men to be more aware of it as well. Yeah, so I guess it's sort of like if you take just an evolutionary psychology view, like, oh, women are this way because this is how they were for two million years. You miss the fact that culture and society has evolved a lot faster than our DNA. So it could be, you know, men still have the DNA of people who are going to run away from lions and kill lions, and women still have the DNA of gatherers, whatever that means. But in today's society, there's no lions walking around on the streets. So we're allowed to do different things outside of the purely traditional gender roles. But I feel like there's still a, a gray area where there's there you want to still acknowledge some gender roles while again increasing as many freedoms and opportunities as possible. Does that make does that make sense? It does. I mean, women have babies, right? Men aren't going to have babies. So then to figure out how do you, you know, it's, I don't think that we're uh putting women down by saying women are different in certain ways or it's not about who's better it's just acknowledging differences and then it's that gray area as you say of acknowledging okay we have these differences but how much of it is biological and we don't necessarily know that and i don't know that we're going to know that anytime soon but just becoming more aware of of our differences acknowledging it and then figuring out how do we help how do we support each other moving forward so what's the next what's the next book i don't know that's a good question i don't know what's next 
I feel like you can go on forever doing 13 things mentally strong X don't do because it's certainly teens, entrepreneurs, writers, athletes, there's a whole category. Here's, here's my two cents. You want my two cents? Yeah, I would love your two cents. <laughs> so, uh, A, you can franchise it in a traditional way in the sense that uh, the next one, like let's say it's 13 things mentally strong athletes don't do by Amy Morin and find an athlete to yeah. co-write it with you. And then you don't even necessarily write it or you just you know edit it at the end, but you could then do it across 50 categories. You know, it's kind of like um, don't sweat the small stuff type right. of thing. Um, so that's one idea. Uh, the other thing is just writing something completely different. Like if yep. you were to write something completely different, what would you do? Well, you know, on the opposite end, a mental strength exercise book is something I've yeah. thought about too. I like that. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, I wonder if you can make that an app somehow. Right. Like, you know, kind of throw up uh, the mentally strong exercise of the day that you have to do. Like they could answer a bunch of questions about, you know, and you could give some sort of mental strength assessment. And then there's here's 20 exercises that apply to that assessment. And then the app sort of, you know, wakes you up in the morning, like do this by the end of the day. And right. then some Facebook group is is notified when you check in. I've done I've done this exercise on the day. I'm just making it up. But. That could be a great way to be accountable. But sort of like when you go to, if you were to, let's say you uh, injured your ankle, you go to see a physical therapist, they send you home with a sheet of exercises to do and you can look at what you're going to do. And so uh, I think for people then to have a some sort of a reminder of mental strength exercises you can do because we get caught up in day-to-day -day life and you forget to do them or you forget what to do or how to do them. So I think it would be fun to do something like that now that I've explained what not to do. I've talked about some exercises. There's tons more. So I think it would be fun to do something about Here's some mental strength exercises. Yeah, because then as you develop more exercises, you don't read you don't need to write a whole book. Uh, you could sort of download them into the into the app, right? Exercises, and then the you can give out the app for free. But to join the Facebook group where you're participating and other people are participating and talking about the exercises and building a community, maybe that's forty dollars a year, some right. small number that you know it's not really offensive to anybody and. You, you get thousands of members. It's a good, a good little lifestyle business. So, uh, so that's 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 my idea of thank the, you of for the that. day you, for you. you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> what about outside the mentally the mentally strong space? Like we, you're a mentally strong superhero now. You've written all these books. <laughs> you have all this mental strength. What what completely different thing can you do? Can you make a movie? Write a novel? Uh, open up a chain of therapy clinics? Huh. <laughs> you're did Steve Cohen just laugh at that? He did. <laughs> he did. Yeah, I don't know. Good question. Now that I, you know, I was a therapist and I always say I became an accidental author and then this is three books in four years that I sat down to write. And so now to know oh, what's next, do I keep writing? Do I do something different? And I, well, I feel like you did uh, uh, strengthen your, your writing muscle with this book in that um, you it's a challenge. You moved beyond your personal story, uh, which was very intense and, and how you, you know, worked on it and solved that situation was a very important story to tell. But now you've done all, you know, all these studies and you bring in the stories of many more, uh, patients and there's many more anecdotes from, from history. So I feel like this, it seems to me, this was a harder book to write even than your first book. Cause your first book, you're telling your story. Right. So that's like, it's going to flow out of you. This one, you have to kind of like 
figure out what sources to draw from every day and and then put it together in story form that fits your writing. So so this was a challenge. I'm just trying to figure out what's the next time to write, write a thriller novel about a mentally someone who reads uh, Amy Morin's mentally <laughs> strong book because is going to use this to fight crime. Or Interesting, <laughs> right. Well, one thing I've thought about doing is people who have read my stuff, I get emails, tons of emails from people who share their stories with me, sort of like the humans of New York, but people who say, you know, I put this into practice and this is what happened in my life. Yeah, that's So I'd great. love to find a way to share people's stories now about how they became mentally stronger and what happened in their life, what they did and what the results of that was. I would almost put all of those emails together mm-hmm. and just self-publish it. Yeah, Because if you go with a publisher, they're going to take a year and, you know, nothing against the publisher. Right. But this is just, they might not be as excited about that idea, mm-hmm. so they might not want to give you an advance, really. But you, but it's a valuable thing to, to even enhance the sales of your current books if people then see a book filled with testimonials, but testimonials that give practical guidance, that'll enhance the value of the books they use to get to, to give you those testimonials. Right. Yeah, I think so. And I just, you know, I get my, an email from somebody in Turkey who said, hey, I, I had this problem. This is what I did. I was a student and I put these things into place. Or I get an email from a, a mom who says, you know, I started doing this with my kid and this is what happened. And this is the change that I saw. And so, like we talked about before, when it comes to mental strength, it's not always tangible results that you see in yourself. But if I could share those results from what other people say that they've seen, I think it would inspire people to know, okay, this really helps and it's making yeah. a difference. No, I mean, t- testimonials, four out, of five def- four out of five dentists recommend, you know, right. Crest toothpaste or whatever the ad was. Like testimonials are, are critical. Publishers don't care about publishing those books, but maybe that's an opportunity to try self-publishing and, and see if that works. Uh but I still like the novel idea. Uh, well, how's it going? I know you kind of stopped doing the what we talked about in an earlier podcast, the buying diamonds for cheap and selling them expensive. But do you think that's still a viable business model? If you had to, if you had to fall back on a side hustle, would that be one that you would go back to? I would. I definitely would. And I still get emails occasionally from people who listen to that podcast. And so the last one I got was from somebody who said do you think Amazon and eBay, should I still get into selling stuff on that? And a lot of people who say, I'm, I'm looking for a product or they don't know what to sell. But I think there's still a huge business and I love doing that. So that is something if I decided to take my life in a completely different direction, uh, I could would, see going back to that. Would you still do it with diamonds or would you find a new product? Um, well, you know, because before we did diamonds, but we did jewelry in general. So I, I could definitely see doing jewelry. It's because it's still it's cheap to ship and I still have an account uh, with a wholesaler. a wholesaler. And so it would be an easy one to go back to. And and then you would put up a seller's account on Amazon and eBay and just, and, 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 uh, was, is, is the wholesale, do they drop ship? Can you ship directly to the address? Right, right. Yeah, so and so then, and when I was here before and we talked about it, one of your ideas, one of your other great ideas, was about making a business in a box. And so if we started a jewelry store, maybe it's just bracelets, and we started to make money, then to just sell the that, or yeah. to make a whole bunch of um, websites and sell somebody a package of 25 different websites all at once. And so, or the other thing we we talked about is, are you allowed to use your membership with this wholesaler to let other people pay you for the use of your membership? Right. Right. And then they could just do it on their own and you're just making money from kind of reselling the membership. Exactly. Are you allowed to do that? Yes. Yes. So that seems easy. You should do that. Yep. All right. Well, (laughs) this always, it's always great. Uh, Amy Morin, uh, 13 things mentally strong women don't do. 
I'm not going to criticize the title. I know why you had to do the title. And there is a lot, it, a lot of the stories are very women specific, but I can tell you again, when I was reading 12 out of the 13 things, I thought to myself, this is exactly me. These are problems I have. So I'm just going to ask Amy questions that would help me solve my problems. And they were all related to issues mentally strong women don't do. So thank you for writing this book. I'm going to incorporate these things into my life once again. And uh, I'm sure I will see you for the next podcast. Great. Thanks for having me back And, and I don't know, did we say this before the podcast or, or during? But you're you're the record breaker of most times you've been on the podcast. So congratulations. If I was going to break any record, I think that would be the one I would want. So. Dude, we got to get you a t-shirt or a mug or something. <laughs> Excellent. So, I want the socks with your head on them that I saw you wearing uh, once yeah, before. <laughs> yeah. Well, Steve Cohen oh, yeah. is the, is the expert on that. He's <laughs> Great. Steve. Get yeah. it done. <laughs> yep, oh, wait, you. what what is the what is you want Picard's face on or you want and No, I want James's head on oh, my socks. <laughs> <Tundio, tundio. laughs> wait, what does Picard say to number one, you know, engage you know, when they're going to warp factor five or whatever in Star Trek? Um, the new generation. Oh wow. Engage thrusters. Yeah, maybe. Coming in. Yeah, maybe. Set phasers. Thinking his presence count. So Steve, engage. I'll be in Scotty. <laughs> Great. <laughs> That's all I know. All right. Thanks again, Amy. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. That was fun. Mm-hmm.